I want to uh, I want to speak to you this morning a message entitled Trinkets and Treasures. And uh, you make up your mind about uh, about it a little later. Many of you know that I keep a diary. Mike Barry's been giving me diaries for a long time because we've got a shared story on how a diary probably changed life for both of us. But reviewing my diary from years past is uh, is a valuable exercise at times, especially when there's something that's locked in your mind that you want to you want to recall. And this week, I got to go back and spend some time with some old friends that uh, that were with me during my college days when I was chaplain there at Memorial. And so I needed to go back to a number of diaries just to check out a certain fact. And so I went searching for it, and I found an episode that brought back some interesting memories. And I was already in the process of preparing a sermon, and it fit. I liked it. The diary recounted that I'd taken a flight. In fact, it was, I write these things down. I took Air Canada 623. And I recorded that I had a two-hour layover in Halifax. And I said that because it was a, it was a distraction. I never really liked two-hour layovers in Halifax. But the entry jogged my memory because of something more important than that. I was not expecting to arrive in Toronto with no luggage, but it happened. And I almost felt sorry for the young man who sat behind the baggage counter as I left the carousel and walked towards him. But I know something about this kind of event. This is not a moment to show any kind of weakness. You got to go to the baggage counter with a stiff upper lip, and you can't be smiling and easygoing. As much as that's my natural manner, I just wanted to get a point across. If you show any weakness at the last baggage counter, you can kiss your clean underwear and your socks goodbye. I've learned that. I was more like the guy when I went there who took his dog to the vet on one occasion and asked the good doctor to amputate the animal's tail. Doctor said, well, that's a strange request. Why would you want to cut the tail off your dog? He said, my mother-in-law is coming for a visit. I want no visible sign of welcome. That's the kind of attitude I had when I walked to the baggage counter. I want a no visible sign of weakness whatsoever. I was not happy to go to the meeting on the day after my flight wearing the same outfit I'd worn on my flight. And I knew, based on previous experience, that I'd end up with an Air Canada 10-cent toothbrush, a single-bladed razor, no shaving cream, and a small packet of laundry detergent to wash my delicate garments so someone would be willing to sit by me in the meeting the next day. At least that's the way I felt. All while this is going on, a call center in Calcutta as custodial management of my new shirt and tie, of my dress clothes, and my well-stocked travel kit, and also a small piece of fruitcake that Muriel packed for me so I'd enjoy it in my room when I got there. So you can tell I was upset for all of these things that are wrong. Now, no one likes to lose their luggage. No one likes to part with any of their possessions that they enjoy or that they need. We take comfort in our own things. And whether they're trinkets or whether they're treasures, we want them. You see, most of you today, I trust it's true, 
uh, wearing your own clothes and you arrived in your own vehicle. We're upset when things are lost. And I want to submit to you this morning that God understood loss when we were estranged to him by sin. God understands loss. And this is, this is so true that we have the parables of Luke 15 that show this, the celebrations that occur when lost things are found. A coin is lost and then it's found. A sheep is lost and then it's found. And a son is lost and then is found. We know those parables so very well. And I trust that we understand that we have value in the sight of God. You are no piece of junk. You never regard yourself as a nothing. And last week I preached on identity. You are a treasure in the sight of God. And so don't suffer today from an inferiority complex with regard to where you fit in God's viewpoint. The arrival of God's Son in human form to this earth is death on the cross we sang about a few, a few moments ago. These are convincing proofs of the love of God. Valuable. This morning I want to enlarge your understanding of God's view of who you are again by looking at two similar parables not from Luke but from Matthew chapter 13 a chapter that's filled with the kingdom parables but two brief ones verses 44 to 46 Matthew writes this actually quoting Jesus of course the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field when a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Now the second one. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Amen. These are brief kingdom kingdom parables, and this chapter is filled with them. They're revelations of the nature of the kingdom of God, but more importantly, they're, they're re revelations of the character of the king. This was intended in Jesus' time to tell people the, the kind of kingdom that he was building and the kind of values that it held and where people really stood with God. Now, the parable about the treasure has such a human quality about it. Quite by accident, a treasure is found. How it was found, we're not told. The person was probably just walking and stumbled over it. We do know that someone tried to conceal it, but it was discovered. Maybe over time, they found it. And with what must have been a great deal of tension, the treasure was again carefully concealed by the person who discovered it, a discreet inquiry is made as to who owns the field, a price is agreed upon, the treasure is never mentioned, and the transaction is concluded. Now we can deduct that the person who sold the field did not realize the true, va true value of it because they were unaware that inside of the field that they were now selling there was a buried treasure. The buyer didn't balk at divesting himself of everything he had in order to make the purchase. In fact, that's what the text says. 
the seller was not suspicious that the buyer would be so willing to sell all to make the field his. He took the agreed upon price, which was everything the man had, and he sold the field for him, probably thinking that he's getting maybe a little too high a price. He took possession gladly. He didn't think the price was too, too high. And to say that someone sold everything they had is quite a statement. See, if you compare the kingdom of God in the second parable to this exquisite pearl, it's an easy task. This pearl Jesus speaks about captures his listener's attention because of his absolute rarity. No other pearl exists with such beauty. Its color and its form are perfect. A tiny grain of sand which brought about the birth of this, of this pearl in, in an irritated oyster had been, had been transformed layer by layer throughout a number of years. And when the merchant first sees it, I would suspect he nearly lost his breath. His eyes widened as he hardly dares ask the price. And understand that when Jesus is telling these parables, he is telling them to real people, like you're hearing them this morning. He's telling them to people who understand the value of certain things that are rare. The owner names a figure that's staggering for this. But the merchant is so obsessed with this pearl of great, of great value. And here he is thousands of miles from home possibly and not nearly enough money to pay the king's ransom for it that the owner is asking. He finds himself like a dollar short of what he needs. But this thing is so beautiful that he has to have it, has to possess it. So the merchant leaves the city where the pearl is held. And I would suspect he has some re reservations in his heart. Every waking moment, he thinks of how he can obtain it. I think every night he dreams about this, and he awakens each morning with the fear that some other merchant has met the price, and he's going to lose the beauty of this forever. And back in his native city, he begins to sell his possessions. The luxuries that he spent a lifetime accumulating are sold. His lavish home and furnishings become the possession of others. Every pearl he currently has is sold so that another dealer can give him some cash for it. Bankers may be amazed in this parable as day by day more money pours into their, into their vaults and the estate of the, of the merchant shrinks. All of the things that he considers to be extra in his life goes because he's got just one thing in mind now and finally every possession is gone the things he prized are all sold and in his hand he has the asking price he has the dollar value of this amazing pearl there's no time to waste I would suggest he books passage on the first ship out of port and in secrecy he heads for his destination or he joins a caravan to go get it. His friends are, are perplexed because he's acting like a man that's kind of possessed by what he's seen. Nervous anxiety increases every day. He gets closer to his, to his goal. And finally, the buildings of the city where the pearl is are in view and he hurries to the place where this pearl is kept. Every piece of currency 
that he can raise as he liquidates his world is with him and he stands in front of the cellar they open the folds of cloth they undo and his gaze falls again upon the most beautiful object that he's ever seen and his merchant heart leaps every memory of the possessions he has sold is eliminated and he pays money and this pearl that he's longed for becomes his sole possession because he sold everything else all he has in the world now is one thing. He has a pearl of great value. You see, the idea that the treasure and the pearl is Jesus, or that the pearl and the treasure is the kingdom, has always challenged my thinking. Because it gives humanity way too much credit. I did not search till I found Jesus. He found me. I did not initiate a search for God. He planned my redemption. Also, what amount could I, could I raise to buy the gospel or to buy entrance into the kingdom of God? What price could I pay to buy the favor of God? We are people who profess one thing, and we sang about it this morning. We profess that Jesus Christ purchased us, not the other way around. And so there's a danger in looking at this parable that we draw the wrong kind of conclusions about what's really going on here. And so allow me today to probe your mind a little bit with the contention that in these parables, Jesus himself is the seeker. You see, he's the searcher who uncovers the treasure in the field, and he is the merchant in search of the pearls. It's consistent with his own sense of mission. Listen to some of the things he says. Luke tells us, I believe it's chapter 19 and verse 10, Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Treasures in the field, pearls, of great, great price. You see, we are part of lost creation. Let's not give ourselves way too much credit. When God built us in the beginning, he concluded that the creation of humanity was very good. He looked upon his creation in the creation story and says that. But after centuries of sin, we were covered by the dirt and debris of generations of those who came came before us. Our resume is not all that good in God's sight. And let me offer you an Old Testament insight on the sale of property. A transaction which sheds light on, on the sale of the field that you see in the New Testament world. Leviticus 27 and 16 says this. If a man dedicates to the Lord part of his family land, its value is to be set according to the amount of seed Required for it. Fifty shekels of silver to a homer of bar, bar, barley seed. And so when you, when you parse this out a little bit, simply put, a piece of agricultural land was valued according to how much harvest it could produce. And so you set the price according to its potential. But in the parable, and every parable has a twist, you can't read the parable without finding 
that there's something that you expect, but all of a sudden it changes. And Jesus throws his audience a bit of a curve. In this parable, there's treasure. There's value beyond the ordinary. It exceeds what you could produce from this land. And when I view the process of establishing the kingdom of God, the one who who sought the citizens for God's new family, when Jesus is putting together what we call the New Testament church, he saw the hidden potential of the human race and was willing to give everything in order to obtain it, in order to buy it. In the other parable of the pearl, he sells all to claim what was above all things he ever possessed. And that's why we have to challenge our own thinking along these lines. With joy, he pays the price for the field. And later, the satisfaction he has when the price is given for the pearl. The writer to the Hebrews would reflect on the motivation for Jesus going to the cross. And in chapter 12 and verse 2, the writer says this, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him. Get those words straight. When God looks at you and me, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the view we need to, we need to grasp in this, kingdom par- in this kingdom parable. You see, if I read the parables of Luke 15 correctly, let me go back there for a moment. A value has been assigned to things that were lost. The scribes and the Pharisees, if you read the opening lines, would have gathered to hear Jesus teach, and they would have been, they would have been so approving when Jesus announced The woman swept the house and found the coin because we love to reclaim currency. Who wouldn't love for the stock market to rebound to such a degree that that anything that we've ever lost in the past, the meltdown of 2008 would be be like just a little blip on the screen? Who wouldn't love to see all of our gains in double digits? Triple digits. See, the audience would have been gratified as well when the shepherd found the lost sheep, brought it back into his fold. Sheep had value. It's livestock. So wonderful. But they balked and they sputtered when the lost son came home. How odd. Value for money. Value for sheep. But angry that the lost boy came home. Because you see, they thought he was worthless. The person in the story is besmirched a little bit. His stock is way, way down. He was a disobedient boy, so he earned nothing but disgust from these people. The prodigal was a write-off. They looked upon him and said, he's a bad investment. You gave him the money, you bring, he brings nothing of value back to you again, but only a memory of how much he'd taken. He had wasted his substance on riotous living in a far-off country. You see, the element of the prodigal son story that's often overlooked is really the point of the treasure and the, and the pearl uh, parables. 
You see, did the father of the prodigal get his money back? I don't think so. Scripture tells us he squandered it and wound up in a pig pen. But he received something, and here's Jesus' point. He received something even more valuable back. He received his son back. That's the real, that's the real point there. He got back a beaten but repentant boy who had been buried in a distant land under a field of the dirt of his own life, and now he'd been restored to his proper place. The father's love had sought him in a distant land and brought him home to where he belonged. That's what I read in Matthew 13 that Jesus has done. And so there's a connectedness there that we can't miss. Now notice something about these two parables. Besides how short they are. They stop abruptly. There's no end story. We don't know what the man did with the treasure. We're never informed on how we used the pearl. We don't know where it was displayed and the other questions that need to be asked about priceless things. But the story's ended with something important. It ends with possession. I've got the treasure that was in the field. I've got the pearl that's worth such a great price. I've purchased them both. See, if there's a common denominator, it's that. Valuable items are bought by one who is willing to let go of everything else to get them. Now, can I go back to my story about the lost luggage? Because I didn't finish it. I missed telling you something at the beginning, sort of on purpose. I found my luggage. This time I did anyway. I went to Pearson International Airport in the evening, 24 hours after I had been there initially. I was on a mission. I wanted that bag. Almost desperately wanted it. It was not at the airport. But while I was there, I learned almost by accident that a company was contracted by the airport to remove all delayed, lost, and unclaimed bags from the terminal, transport them to a warehouse in another area of the city of Toronto, no less, and hopefully reunite them with their owners. Sounds kind of impressive, doesn't it? So I found out where the where warehouse was. I took the 405. Uh, diaries are great things. Because the, someone had to give me instructions. Still written in the margin. I took the 405 to the 429 and turned on to Derry Road. <laughs> I found a Shell gas station. They told me it was there. And across from, uh, across from an Esso station. Shell and Esso on opposite sides of the road. And I wandered through an industrialized area of vacuous ware warehouses until I found what I was looking for. Door 13. Lucky thir 13. Sprawling building, and when I got inside the door, it looked like it was vacant to me. I found a staff of people, I found vans being unloaded, and I found six to seven hundred pieces of lost luggage. <laughs> and so I presented my luggage tag, and I was escorted to the long lines of luggage, and someone said, Go for it. Have a look. See if you can find your needle in this haystack. 
I saw it in the second row. There was only like 100 pieces in the first row, and I got halfway through the second row, and I was reunited with my suitcase. I got my clean clothes back. Sweet victory, because I was heading out on the morning flight. And if I hadn't got it then, it would have been delivered to the hotel, but I wouldn't have been there. And judging from the sheer volume of luggage that was there, my bag would never have made it to the hotel on time, and I would have kissed it goodbye forever. But there's still something I haven't told you. I still left something essential out. I could have cared less about the suitcase. It didn't really matter. It was a Canadian tire jobby that I bought on points. I didn't care about the few personal effects that were in it. I would have been a little upset to have lost my new shirt. And you know what I'm like about ties? I had three ties, and the, and the big task that morning would have been to get up and decide which tie I was going to wear. I'd have lost a pair of dress pants. I, regret, I would have regretted missing my fruitcake. It would have been good. But Muriel could always bake me another one. You see, everything that I had was easily replaceable. Except that when I left home in a hurry, I tucked my wedding band and I tucked the ring that my mother gave me when I was 17 years old into a side pocket of a suitcase. I put my treasures in with my trinkets. I put things that meant absolutely nothing in with things that mean a great deal to me. See, and I only thought about these things being there because I packed in a hurry. I only thought about it when my baggies failed to arrive on the Air Canada carousel for flight 623, and I knew I would do absolutely anything to get back these irreplaceable items. Last week, we celebrated 43 years of marriage. This ring has been through something. I've had, I've had this ring since 1972 that my mom and dad gave me. It's irreplaceable. I could have bought other rings, but they never would have replaced my loss. And so finding them became a 24-hour obsession with time running out. And in my own experience of potential loss, I understood this parable in a new way. I saw the quest of the Almighty for the long lines of humanity. I saw the endless brokenness of this kind of life that we live, and I saw so many people, but he sees something within us that no one else sees. You are not without value to God. He sees what we cannot see ourselves. He has a connection with us that predates every other relationship, and he loves us even when we are estranged from him. When our world falls apart, and when it seems as though we have no, no value whatsoever, God says, I love you. And the proof is in, the proof is in the communion service. Jesus gave his life for us. See, the plan of redemption is the Father's search for the priceless souls of his children. 
It's you and me. Lives that have been overlaid with the contamination and the corruption of this world. But God knew what the blood of a perfect sacrifice would accomplish. He saw treasure when he looked at us. He saw value when he looked at us because we were made by him for him. You're not some trinket. That's just replaceable today. You're just not just an average, an average Joe. You're a precious possession to be reclaimed from lostness and transformed to live in God's presence forever. That's possession. That's where the parable goes. When I look at Christ today, He's willing to give everything. He gives everything. To purchase. Because that's the way we talk about redemption. Oh, perfect redemption, the song says, the purchase of blood to every believer. The promise of God. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, pardon, receives. That's who we are. One day, God will take the priceless church that he's purchased, a church that he calls his glorious bride, and he will present us as a priceless pearl robed in white. He will present us to the Father. We have been purchased at the cost of the life of Jesus Christ and made ready for eternity with him. Don't settle for the devalued kind of price this world puts on your life. Don't settle for anything less than God's estimate of who you are. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back and we're going to prepare our hearts for communion. And as they come, I want to pray with you today. It's very possible that right in the seat this morning, the Spirit of God has convinced someone of their value in the sight of God. And you need to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ and say, Lord, you bought me. And I'm happy to be your possession. If that's true, many of us will praise him. But for someone who is out of relationship with God, it's a moment for you to begin. It's a moment for you to say very simply. If all the prodigal had to say was, Father, I have sinned. And that's all anybody really needs to say to God. I've sinned, and I know I'm not worthy. But would you take me in? And I can give you a guarantee this morning that when a repentant heart reaches out to God, he never turns you away. Let that be a thought in your mind this morning.